we're going to open up in prayer and we will start in Romans chapter 1, verse 1 tonight. And we're going to be um, starting our verse by verse, digging through this. In the first kind of opening verses, we're actually going to be jumping back and, and looking at some things in the Old Testament. We're also going to be making a reference to some things that Paul said in Galatians that we've already seen, but just to kind of highlight and, and get you thinking. There's, there's probably, if I were going to try to do like tell you how many uh, topics we're going to be covering tonight, there's probably three. Um, and just before we open up in prayer, I'll just kind of share those with you so you kind of have a, an idea of the game plan. One, we're going to kind of look and 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 spend a little bit spend a little bit of time thinking about this word servant. It reads servant in mind. Uh, we spoke a, maybe a week or so back on this word uh, being translated from the word doulos, which really probably more closely ties to what our our idea of a bond servant or a slave. And and in fact, many of the translations you may be reading out of tonight may in fact read Paul a slave of Christ Jesus. So we're going to spend some time talking about that word. We're going to spend some time talking about two words that are that are tied to the same idea. One Paul uh, uses in these seven verses the word called or to be called uh, three times and he uses uh, a, a phrase to be set apart and we're going to look at that and we're going to from these two from slave of Christ or uh, servant of Christ and from called and set apart, we're, we're gonna, I'm going to pose you some questions, right? So tonight, we're going to come out with two questions and one uh, kind of idea that's going to lead us through the rest of the book. So the two questions are going to come from those two topics, and then we're going to look at the gospel of God. And we're going to see in, the, in really the, his greeting, his saying hello to the Romans, that we actually can find out a lot about Paul's ideas or Paul's concepts about this gospel of God that for the next, you know, uh, 11 chapters, he's just going to be pouring out some theology on us. And we're going to be able to, even in the introduction of this book, even in the greetings, like really the hello of this book, we can find so much meat packed into this. And one thing that I want us to get out of this is kind of a thing that I bring up, you know, every so often in, in my preaching is, is that it's important for us to, to, to pay attention to the words. The words are important here. And we're going to see that Paul wastes no words at all, right? So even in like, if, if we were to meet each other on the street or I were going to write you a letter and I were going to say hello to you, you would not expect to find too much in the hello. You would be looking for what comes after it. But Paul, man, his, his concepts and his ideas of God are so thick and so laid out that he can't even get from the hello without pouring out all kinds of just important uh, nuggets of insight into his understanding of what this gospel is that he's going to be sharing. So those are the three things that we're going to look at tonight, and we're going to look at that from verse 1 down through verse 7, the greeting uh, portion of the book of Romans. So I want us to open up in prayer, and then we're going to uh, start picking this, these, this passage of Scripture apart. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you for allowing us to come together in this place that we could... Uh, spend time in fellowship, spend time in the studying of Your Word, Lord, and also spend time in the worshiping of Your name. You are so worthy to be worshipped, Lord, and in, indeed all that You've done and all that You're doing through the Gospel we'll find should be something that is driving us to the worship of Your name. The Gospel is poured out on us. Your mercy and grace is poured out on us so that we would... Lord, praise Your name and Your name alone because You are the only one worthy of praise. And, and I just want to thank You up front, Lord, for uh, all that You have done already. Uh, and I, I want to praise You as well for what You're going to do uh, for us as we open up Your Word and as Your Holy Spirit moves in our hearts to shape us and to and to mold us into the, to the image of Christ through the course of our lives and through the working of the Holy Spirit, Lord, that we would be uh, images and, and images of Christ 
to this world, that they would see us in everything that we do, Lord, that we would not back down to what the truth of your word says, but that we would always be sharing the truth of your word in love and in kindness and in gentleness, Lord, but let us not be uh, timid, Lord, let us not be afraid as though we don't have the truth, because we do, and I pray that as we dig into your word that you would just build up for us uh, an overwhelming understanding of just how true this message that we proclaim is and just how important it is for a world that doesn't have it, how important it is for those that we come in contact with in our workplaces, in our schools, in our cities, in our towns, in our nation, Lord, that we would be unashamed as Paul is unashamed of this gospel. Lord, even though it says things that the world does not want to hear, that we would be bold in saying it, Lord. Not because we hate them, but because we love them, and you love them, and sometimes love says hard things. Lord, and I pray that you would prepare us and mold us and work in us in such a way that we would love so much that we would be afraid to say things that people do not like because ultimately it will result in the saving of their souls. This is the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would let its roots grow down deep in this church and that it would bear fruit in our community and fruit in our lives. Lord, I thank you for this. As we open up your word, I ask that your Holy Spirit would go out into this place in our hearts and our lives, that you would help us to pull from your word Lord, the truth of your word, so that we could be made more like you. It's in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Man, I'm so excited about this. And I am also, at the same time, so extremely nervous about this also. Y'all got to know that every time that I open this book up and start studying, my mind goes down another path. Right? Like I'll see one thing and I'll be over here following that path and I'll see another thing and I'll go down another path with that. There's so much in this that sometimes it confounds my mind. And one of the hardest things that I find about uh, preaching this book to you all is that, that sometimes I feel uh, inadequate in it. Um, I know sometimes I can stand up here and maybe I, maybe I seem confident, but man alive, like this scares me to death because I know the power that this book holds, and at the same time, I know the power that I hold to just stumble all over it. So I pray that God would move through me in teaching this to you, that I would do justice to the words that He has penned in this book. So uh, with that being said, we're going to start off just by reading the first seven verses of the book of Romans. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord and the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. So there is a lot that we're going to try to cover here in these seven verses. The first thing that I want us to look at, and part of the reason that we spent the the first of this, this series and study looking at Paul was so that we could dig into this idea of servant of Christ or slave to Christ. One thing that I want us to do quickly is to remind ourselves where we left off with Paul and what he's experienced up to this point that he's writing this letter in 2 Corinthians chapter 
11, starting about the middle of verse 21. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are the Hebrews, so am I. Are the Israelites, so am I. Are they offsprings, are they offspring of Abraham, so am I. Are they servants of Christ, I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman, for with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers from fall brothers in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst often without food and cold and exposure and apart from other things there's my daily there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches who is weak that I'm not weak who is made to fall that I'm not indignant this is the Paul here that opens up a servant or probably more closely to be seen and understood by us a slave of Christ And what I want us to understand here is that we can see very clearly that when Paul is called, he's called to suffering, and he endures it well. And the point in time that we find him writing the book of Romans, all of this that I've just read, he's endured. Right? He has been beaten for Christ. And what I want to tell you here is that oftentimes when we think of slaves, we think of slavery as something that we would never want to be a part of. But what I want to tell you is that you, friends, are slaves. Right? I want you to, I want you to get this and I want you to understand this. Think about that for a second. I'm not saying that you're going to be free. What I'm telling you is that you are slaves and you will always be slaves. You'll be slaves of one thing Or another, right? Don't think that to be free from Christ is to be free to yourself because free to yourself is a slave to sin, right? So when we identify ourselves, when Paul identifies himself, he identifies himself as being a slave of Christ. Now what I want you to understand is that when Paul thinks of slavery to Christ, Paul does not think, boy, I wish I could go back to that thing before. Right? Paul looks at slavery to Christ as something that he treasures. Something that he finds hope in. Right? So, we too, as Christians, should consider ourselves slaves to Christ. And this comes with a lot of baggage. And what I want to what I want to get at, and one of the things that we're going to kind of think about in the coming weeks is what does it mean for us to be a slave to Christ? I want you to think about other passages of Scripture that you know of that relates to slavery or having a master and what it means, right? Like one in particular is can you have two? Can you be a slave of two masters? What would Scripture tell us? No. Right? Clearly not. And this, I'm planting this seed and it's gonna be chapters later before we start addressing this seed again. But what I want, when we get there, I'm gonna refresh your memory about how Paul, in the very opening words of this book, has related himself as being a slave to Christ Jesus. Right? So when we get there and we start digging into some things, because at that point we're going to be digging into sin and being a slave to sin and being a slave to the law of sin and these kind of ideas. And when we get there, what I want you to see is that Paul has laid an anchor all the way from the beginning as to who you are a slave to. Christian. You are a slave of Christ. That means that you are not free to go living your own life. Do you understand that? Right? When you're a slave, what does that mean? You do the will of your master. And this is the, this is the, there's a beautiful thing in this. Right? Slavery here on earth is evil. To be a slave to Christ is beautiful because we serve a master who wants only our good. 
in showing and displaying His glory to all the world. Right? So we don't serve a master who's harsh on us, who beats us, who hates us, who sees us just as an object to get something done. We serve a master who loves us, who cares for us, who wants the best for us, and whose commands lead to the best for us. And Paul is stating this and knowing this, including all that we just read about what he'd gone through. Right? So when we get digging into this, I want you to understand that. I want you to understand that Paul finds joy in all that's happened. Because he knows that ultimately it's working for God's glory. Right? And there's something to hope for more than just what we find in this world. More than the shipwrecks that this life leads us to. More than the beatings that we get at the hands of friends or former friends. Right? That what we have hope for in the Master whom we now serve is greater than anything that this world could offer us. Paul, a servant, or Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. Let's move to the next. And, and literally, the very next word. Like He does not waste a word in this. Called to be an apostle. Set apart for the gospel of God. Now I want us to look at this word called because he uses it two more times. Uh, down in verse 6 and verse 7. And the next two times he uses it, he's going to use it in reference to us. Or specifically, he's using it in reference to the saints uh, in Rome. But clearly speaking to those who have come to Christ and belong to Christ. So I want us to dig into Paul's understanding. What is he thinking? What does he mean when he's talking about called, right? Now, specifically, he says called to be an apostle, and then he uses the wording here, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, we had, two, two weeks back, we had looked in Galatians, and uh, it, it was kind of in that storm of Scripture that we kind of just flew through a bunch of things. So, uh, no fault of yours if, if you don't remember us cover, covering this. But in Galatians, we look at another place where Paul uses very similar wording. And I want us, in, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, specifically, I want us to look. He uses a very similar construction of the way that he lays this out, but we get a little bit more detail into what he's thinking when he's using these phrases and using these words. So when Paul says what he says, he's not just saying it and just throwing words out there. When he says it, there's an entire idea that's in his mind, a, a major concept that we're going to see he lays out throughout the book of Romans, and we get a glimpse in it in the wording that he uses. So Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, he says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not go immediately to consult anyone. We're going to stop there. And I want us to think about what he just said. So who is the he that he's referring to here in Galatians? It's the same he that he's referring to over here in Romans chapter 1, right? This, clearly he's referring to God. Okay, so I want us to think about this. And I, uh, these are going to be questions, right? So these are the two parts, the slave part, thinking about what it means to be a slave, and now this being called or being set apart. I want you to be letting that churn in your hearts and in your minds over the next coming weeks. So we're gonna pre- I'm going to present some things, not necessarily give you answers yet, so that you can be digging and letting these things kind of take root as you yourselves study. So he says here, and I want you to pay very closely close attention to the words that he uses in Galatians chapter 1, verse 15. But when he, speaking of God, who had set me apart, when did he set him apart? Because he uses this idea of being set apart over in Romans. So we need to know, what is he thinking? When he thinks of himself being set apart, what is he thinking in that? And what do we get here? What does it say? From where? In this translation that we're going to find up on the screen, we say, from the mother's womb. Mine reads, before I was born. So, does any, I'm just curious. Yeah, from birth. So, what did Paul do from birth to Damascus Road? 
He grew up under a Jewish heritage, learning the law. He became very zealous over the law, so much so that he was the chief persecutors of the early church. And yet he would say that God set him apart from when? From birth. So I want you to understand early on that Paul does not see anything that happens or anything that occurs in this world as being accident or happenstance. Right? From the womb, he was set apart for what? Let's look at this. Verse 15, Galatians chapter 1. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me, so there's the setting apart, there's the calling, who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So he was set apart before birth, before he persecuted one person. Before he'd read one law or one dictate of Scripture, one mandate was in his mind of what God's Word says. Paul here claims that he was set apart. This is not me saying it for Paul. Right? Get that. Get that. This is not me putting words into Paul's mouth here. This is the man who persecuted the church saying this. Right? So I want us to get that in our heads from the beginning, that when he thinks about himself being called and set apart, it's not just Damascus Road that he's referring to. Right? There's something bigger in the working of God that Paul's thinking of and that he's referring to. Right? There's something bigger than Paul himself in what he's thinking here. So I want, I want to kind of plant that seed here. And another thing is that his being set apart and his calling is not for no reason. But being set apart and called has a purpose. Right? Y'all see that here? Right? Read the scripture again. He's not set apart so he sits at home. Right? He's not set apart and called so that he sits in a pew. He's set apart and called when it was pleasing for God to reveal His Son. In order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. So I want you to understand that when Paul thinks about being called, he thinks of specific purpose in the calling. Right? So let's flip back over. Here, So I just want to plant that seed again. These things are going to be played out as we go through the book of Romans, but I want to point them out and I want to highlight them so that you can be thinking about them. I told you all last week uh, as we were looking at some scripture kind of deeper in in chapters 9, 10 and 11 that that I was not going to be sneaking in. Right. That I was going to be very open with you at the points to which Paul is bringing some of these difficult topics up. And what I want you to see is that from the very opening of the book. Right? Everything that he's doing, there's some big concepts in there. Right? I don't want us to be afraid of these concepts. I want us to dig into them. Paul's not afraid of them. He's not ashamed of them. Right? He's working through them and he believes that God is working something major. That God is working something big. Right? So that's the two kind of Question points are the two points that I want you to be thinking about over the coming weeks as we're digging into this. The next thing that I want you to see here. So he set apart, verse 1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart. He set apart for something, right? What is that something? He says, set apart for the gospel of God. Whose gospel? God's. Now I want us to think about what the gospel is. And over the coming weeks, we're really going to dig into this. right? We're really going to dig into our ideas and our concepts about what the gospel is, what part we play in this whole thing, what the purpose of it is, all of these things. We're going to question and we're going to dig into and we're going to say, what does Scripture tell us about them? Right? 
So first thing that I want us to get off here seeing is that immediately, first sentence of the book, he's set apart for God's gospel, right? So we don't make the gospel what we want the gospel to be, right? You don't reform it or refactor it into something else, right? The gospel is to be presented. It's God's gospel, right? So I want us to get that because we have a tendency to want to make the gospel into what we want it to be or maybe what will make it a little more palatable to the world, right? So we'll maybe, maybe we'll just like, we won't talk so much about the, the sin thing and we'll just talk about the love thing, right? Man, that's, I see some shaking of heads. But I want to tell you that probably the most dangerous avenue by which Satan is going to wreck our ability to preach the gospel is he's going to tell everyone that what sin is not sin. And he wants to make you look foolish if you say it's sin. You cannot preach the gospel if you don't preach sin. You can't preach the gospel where it's not needed, and it's not needed where there's no sin. This is why Paul, when he breaks into the gospel, he doesn't jump over to, oh, the lovey-dovey stuff. Jesus loves you. He does love you. But there's a major problem that you have. It's sin. And the gospel is the gospel. It's good news. Because of sin. Because you have it. And because of that, God's wrath is upon you. So it's God's gospel. It's so much your sin. It's so much our sin. Yet it's God's gospel. It's God's gospel. I want us to get this too. I want us to get this. We need to understand this. Right? We need to understand this. This is a, a major point because when we think of the gospel also, we think of the gospel as something owed to us, right? Because we're not so bad. And that's because we ourselves have gone through this process of whatever that sin is that I have, I'm going to downplay that, right? I'm going to downplay it so it doesn't look so bad. So then I get in my mind that somehow I deserve the mercy of God, like He owes it to me. And what I want to tell you is that God owes you nothing. If you were going to say He owes you something, then He likely owes you wrath. Right? So this is God's gospel. So what does God's gospel look like? Right? Even in the introduction to the book, we start seeing some major pictures. So Paul set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised. Who promised? Is this it, Literally, every single word in this opening we're going to be stopping and looking at. Who promised? God promised. Where? Where? In the Old Testament. Now I'm going to read a couple more passages of text here, and then we're going to really go and look at the Old Testament. So, this gospel of God, which He promised, when did He promise it? Beforehand, how did He promise it? Through His prophets in the Holy Scripture. So we get an idea of Paul's view of Scripture here as well. He holds it as holy, and where did it come from? From the prophets, right? He was raised up in the Jewish heritage. Right? Pharisee of Pharisees. So it makes sense that he would hold the Scriptures in high regard. Right? So why it's important, I thought it was important for us to spend some time on where Paul comes from. Because even in the opening of this book, we see these things come out. Right? So, Gospel of God, which God Himself has promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. About who? About who? Who's the Gospel about? He goes on in verse 3, starts off there, concerning His Son. This is Jesus, right? So, the Gospel of God is about who? Primarily, first, and foremost. Did you say Jesus? 
Is the gospel about Jesus? Is the good news about Jesus? Or is it about you? Because again, the self-centered focus of the gospel and what it gives me tends to be the way that we view the gospel. And that's how we make it our gospel. But in fact, I want to tell you that it's God's gospel. And God's gospel is Christ-centered. It does not revolve around you. It revolves around Christ. Get this. This is important. This is critical. And this has been promised. It's God promising, God fulfilling His promise. That's the good news. Right? So where do we see this? We're going to do kind of a quick little tour. We've got one, two, three, four places in Scripture that we're going to go. I say quick tour. It's going to be fairly quick. I want to show you. Now there's a concept that I want you to, that I want you to start thinking about. When God in the Old Testament was working, the fall has happened. Humanity goes off on its... We're going to see as we dig into Romans just how bad... Humanity goes, and God, from the very beginning, starts making promises to us, right? So I say from the very beginning, I literally mean the very beginning, the fall, chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 15, we see the very first promise that God has made. So these ideas, these questions that I posed to you a couple of weeks back about how were people in the Old Testament saved, they're saved in the same way that you were saved. They placed their faith in the God who makes promises and fulfills those promises. You were saved today in that very same way is that you put your faith in the God who fulfills His promises. And He has done that primarily where? In the Gospel of Christ. Right? So He's making a promise. We've got sin starting, God promising from the very beginning. What does He say? I will put, this is verse 15 of chapter 3 of Genesis. or Yeah, chapter 3, verse 15 Genesis. I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking to the serpent here. Between your offspring and her offspring. He... He, not they, he shall bruise your, not their, your head. He's speaking to the serpent here. Whose seed? Adam's seed? Does it say Adam's seed? No. Her offspring. So even in the very early places, we get pictures and images of something that can't come by natural means. Now, there was only a couple of people around at this point, so we'll, we'll just assume that maybe they, you know, they were just kind of figuring that whole thing out, but later on that will be important because you don't just get babies from a woman on her own, right? So how would it going to come about? But even from the very first promise, we get these pictures in there. We get these glimpses and God over time progressively reveals his promise more and more to each generation until the point that he fulfills it in Christ right so we get this small glimpse here he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise or he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel so we get this idea of one stepping on a head and in the process of that himself being injured or struck right and this is the first glimpse the first picture looking forward the first promise made that God would provide so how was Adam and Eve saved if they were saved through the promise maker and the promise keeper right always Always. No one ever made it by keeping the law. No one ever made it by doing what God said in the law. The very first law, don't eat. They failed at it. Every single one of us, if placed in the same situation, would have failed in the same way. It speaks of some big gap between our being and the righteousness of God Himself. So we progress on in Scripture, and God continues. And we're, we, for just time's sake, don't have time to look at all of these. Uh, we're going to just look at a handful. So uh, He makes a promise to David in chapter 7 of Second Samuel. So Second Samuel chapter 7. I'll give you all a second to get there. It's going to move through this piece kind of quickly. So David wants to build a temple for God. 
And in the process, God sends Nathan to speak a prophetic word to David, and, and, and God makes a promise. Now, here's the thing that we get. Here's the thing that we get. These promises that he's making here, there's no stipulations on these, right? God doesn't make this promise to David and then say to David, now that's if you keep my law, right? God makes a promise that God himself is going to keep. Right? No stipulations. He makes a promise. He's going to fulfill that promise. Right? So he tells David something here. And again, there's progressive revelation of these truths throughout Scripture. As we get closer to the cross, these, pro- these prophecies become more and more clear and easier to see as pointing to Christ. So here we find in chapter 7, I'm going to start reading uh, about, it's the second sentence in Verse 11, it says, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So again, David wanted to make God a house, the temple, and God says, no, 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 no. I'm going to make you a house. So God's making promises to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Right? Now, who is that? That's Solomon. Uh, we've, we've read a book on Solomon here recently, Ecclesiastes. So you know that guy, right? Deserving of nothing, God making promises along the way. Here in verse 13, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of His kingdom forever. Right? So again, these promises being made that the kingdom of David through his son, through specifically there through uh, Solomon and, and the, the reign, the people that would come uh, from him um, verse let's jump down to verse 16 God's still making promises and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me your throne shall be established forever right so God making these promises these are prophetic promises now if you look in the lineage what you'll find is that somewhere along the way it would appear that God had failed in his promises right Somewhere along the way, like the whole kingdom just falls apart. You look at Solomon's life, shortly after Solomon's life, the kingdom is splitting, and then it's just downhill from there. It would appear God made a promise here. Did God fail in His promise? This is going to be a question that's going to come up again. Did God or can God fail in His promises? He said, I'm going to establish for you a kingdom forever. I would say, where is the kingdom of David again? It's in Christ. Alright? So the fulfillment of these things, prophetically pointing towards Christ. Now, again, let's progress forward. We're going to look at Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verse 6 through uh, verse 7. Yeah. Uh, So I'll give you all a second to get there. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Again, what you should see is as we're progressing closer to the cross, these prophecies are are revealing themselves more and more clear to who it is that He's speaking of. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon His shoulder, and His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Hold on a second. If I'm a a Jew, and I'm reading this passage of text, and I'm saying a son is born, that they're going to call what? Unto you. Let's read this again. For or for to us a child is born, a child is born, that his name is going to be what? Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God? Mighty God, are you sure? Everlasting Father, this is a child being born. They're going to call him Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And this is is one of those places where i got to say, like, how would y'all miss that? That was probably one of those like difficult passages of text to wrestle with. Is How is someone who's going to be born, how is a child coming to us going to be called Everlasting Father or Mighty God? Again, prophecies becoming more and more clear, pointing closer and closer to Christ. If we progress a little further, Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5. Chapter 23, verse 5. Getting ever closer to the cross. 
Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute judgment or execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. This, friends, is what Paul means when he says that he was set apart for the gospel of God, which God promised, right? God made these promises. And I want you to, if you, if we would just spend the kind of time that we should in looking at the Old Testament and following through this, this strand, this just grand story that's being told, then what you would realize is that all hope was lost at the point in time that Christ comes on the scene for these kind of things to ever have been done by human means, right? No human could have ever done what God has done in the gospel. Make promises after promises after promises as it appears that it's going further and further downhill only to pull it out. That's the kind of God that does this kind of gospel, right? So we find here Paul laying out the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. And then we see there from looking back at the passages that they knew that he was going to be coming from the descendant as a descendant of Abraham according to the flesh. And he was declared to be. So one thing that I want to point out is that beginning of verse 3, there's no doubt on who he is. Right? There's no doubt on who this person is. His son in three. But I want you to see that his son is declared. So there's a declaration that's been made here. Right? Like he's dotted the I. If there was ever a doubt as to who Christ was, the work that came through the resurrection put to end all doubts. Right? That's what he's saying here. As a descendant of David, according to the flesh, and he was declared, declared to be the Son of God in power. Not in some weak way, not in some way that you could say, yeah, I could have done that. Or yeah, I could see how somebody could have, you know, I see how they could have pulled that rabbit out of the hat. See how that would have worked out. See how you could have done that by human means. No, the only way possible was in power. In a, speci- a very specific kind of power. A supernatural power. A holy and righteous power. God Himself raising Christ from the dead. It was declared. He was declared the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by... His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations. So there's a lot packed into that. Right? A lot packed into that. Now, obedience to faith, we're going to explore in the weeks to come what this idea and this concept is. Right? So, if that sounds strange to you in your mind as you hear this idea of obedience of faith, right? I want you to understand that as we dig in to the rest of this book, that we're going to get that. One thing that I want to point out for you tonight is whose sake it was for, right? So, in the opening of this book, we get God's gospel concerning His Son for the sake of His Son's name, right? Do y'all see this? The last part of chapter, or chapter 1, verse 5. There, for the sake of His name. Y'all see that? So I want to... Because I don't, I don't think... The way that I hear we tend to talk about the Gospel, I don't think that we really grasp whose Gospel it is and what purpose it is for. Whose sake? Jesus. Now, one, I want to... I want to tell you, like, we reap the benefits of this 
in a major way, right? Your salvation is reaped from this work, right? But if you think it was primarily for you, then again, self-centered gospel, right? It's for the sake of His name. Let's look at this. Obedience of faith for the sake of His name. Again, read it again. Whose sake? Whose name? His name. What name? Christ's name. The one who's been promised. The one who the gospel was concerning. The one when all other names were forgotten that God's promise held true to this. It's Christ. The gospel is centered around Christ. Now here's an, here's an interesting thing that he says about this. So he wants to magnify his name, right? So the, the purpose of this gospel is in glorifying the Son. For the name of Christ to be lifted up and not to just specific people. Right? From the very beginning of this, we see Him laying out this gospel as a gospel for all nations. His name is to be proclaimed to all nations. And what happens when we have a very self-centered gospel is, well, I got mine, man. And I'm going to see it. And do nothing. I'm saved. Thank you, Jesus. I've been called. I've been redeemed. Thank you, Jesus. And we sit around and think, well, what's next? What, what, do I, what do I do now? There are places that do not proclaim the name of Christ. That's what you do now. There are places where He's not given glory that He deserves. That's what you do now. We've been called like Paul was called for purposes. You've been given gifts for very specific purposes. And at the end of this, it's not so that your name can be raised high. It's not for your sake. You reap the benefits of what's for His sake. This is the Gospel. Right? This is the Gospel. It's centered in Christ. It's for the glory of Christ. It's fulfilled by God from beginning to end. The work was done by Him. Verse 6, including you who were called to belong to Jesus Christ. There's that word called again. Including you who were called with a very specific, very amazing, very wonderful calling. What is our calling? To belong to Christ. Now, when I say this, it may sound weird. You've been called to be slaves of Christ, and that's a wonderful thing to hear. But in this calling to belong to Christ, He's the boss. Right? He runs this thing. Not you. Right? You've been called to belong to Him. Now, I want you to read about Him. I want you to dig through Scriptures and see who it is that you've been called to. What a wonderful name. What a, what a wonderful opportunity that we squander away. Because we're more worried about our own than He is. Verse 7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. There's that word again called to be saints. So we have a calling to belong to Christ and we have a calling to be saint-like. What would that involve? We're going to find out as we dig through Scripture. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank You 
for this day, for your mercy and your grace. Lord, I thank you for Christ. I thank you for the promises that you have been making and that you are good to keep. Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit would move in our hearts, move in our lives in such a way that we would start to gain a greater understanding of this gospel, a greater understanding of the calling that's been placed on us as individuals, a greater understanding of the calling that's been placed on us as a church, as the body of Christ. Lord, as we belong to Christ and as we learn what it means to belong to Christ and as we learn what it means to be saints, Lord, I just ask that you would help us, lead us, and guide us, that we would be faithful in our service to you, Lord, that we would not get so caught up in our own lives that we've failed to to glorify the name of Christ, which is the only name worthy of praise, Lord, that he would be praised among all the nations, Lord, in every tongue, or in every tribe, Lord, you are so worthy, you deserve praise in more than just the English language. Lord, so many languages and so many people. And Lord, I just ask that you would work and move in this church, that we would be called to this greater calling. Lord, that as the gospel grows down deep within us, as its roots take hold in our lives, that we would be moved in such a way that we would be Reckless for you. Lord, that we would understand that it's your gospel on your terms and not our gospel on our terms. Lord, that it's concerning Christ primarily. His glory is fundamental in it all. And if, Lord, we preach a gospel that does not proclaim high the name of Christ, then we preach some false gospel. Lord, I ask as we continue through this book over the weeks to come that your Holy Spirit would lead us into a deeper understanding of the gospel in such a way that we could not come out of it unchanged or that we would be empowered by it, that we would be strengthened by it, that we would gain boldness from it or that we would be faithful to it. It's in Christ's name for his glory. Amen.